In July 2003, Tim Schuster went missing during a prolonged and bitter divorce. When his body was found in his estranged wife's storage unit, it seemed like a slam dunk case. But the stories that came out as the co-conspirators pointed fingers at each other threatened to confuse the jury. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back if you've listened before. And actually, if you haven't listened before, you should probably stop right now. This is a part two, so I recommend part one first. As you are listening to this, I will be going to Alaska very soon, so check out the meetup information if you are in the Anchorage area. It's very likely my only chance to go up there and do a meetup, so I hope people can come. And for those who are not in the Anchorage area, next week I will be announcing more information on how to join a virtual meetup in June, so watch for that. Also watch for the after show discussing this case and all things Dateline with the hosts of Date with Dateline podcast. It'll be out later this week. And also, one last announcement before we get to part two. Next week is supposed to be my week off since I'm trying to do those here and there this year, but since I did a two-parter and I did make you wait a week for it, I will have a shorter case for you next week to kind of make up for it. So when we left off last week, 45-year-old Tim Schuster's remains were found partially dissolved in a vat of acid in his estranged wife's storage unit. At the time his body was found, 43-year-old Larissa Schuster was vacationing with their 12-year-old son in another state. Not wanting to tip Larissa off, giving her a chance to run, the police quickly hauled in 21-year-old James Fagoni, who they suspected of being her accomplice. James was sort of a personal assistant to Larissa, and he had helped her break into Tim's home 11 months before the murder. The investigators believed if anyone knew what happened to Tim, it was James. This was the second time they had talked to James. He was interviewed the day before this, not long before Tim's remains were found. He denied knowing anything about what happened to Tim, and he tried to stick to that same story in the second interview for a little bit at least. The interrogators pushed, and James slowly gave a little more of the story with each push. I will say that I've watched a lot of interrogations in my day, and these investigators didn't really have to push James too hard for him to start giving more information. The police theory of the crime was that Tim was killed in the early morning hours of Thursday, July 10th, 2003, after getting a 2 a.m. phone call from Larissa. So the police wanted James to start with what happened on the evening of July 9th. James first said he had brought a movie over to Larissa's house to watch with her son, who he had been babysitting a lot around that time. Around 11, he went home where he had a beer and took some pain medication due to his back injury. James had been in a motorcycle crash and was still dealing with the fallout from that. Sometime between 1 and 3 a.m., James said Larissa woke him up. According to the phone record, she had called him around 
Larissa told him to come for a ride with her. James got up, and they drove to what he assumed was Tim's house. First, he tried to tell the police he didn't know if it was Tim's house, but they pushed him, and he admitted that it was almost surely Tim's house. James said Larissa let herself into the house and then asked James if he wanted anything. To James, it looked like Larissa was committing yet another break-in, and James said he just wanted to go home. Larissa then drove him home at that point, but he wasn't sure if Larissa had gone back afterwards or not. So James's first story was that he knew Larissa had been at the house, and he had been too, outside the house at least, but he left, and who knows what happened after. James then said he was scared when he learned that Tim's body had been found. He knew Larissa said she wanted to kill Tim, and James did not want to get dragged into it. But he also admitted he had trouble telling Larissa no, so he was often being pulled into things. This was an unusual relationship between the 21-year-old James Fagoni and the 43-year-old Larissa Schuster. Both denied that their relationship was romantic or sexual, and there were honestly no signs of it. But James seemed very attached to Larissa, willing to do whatever she wanted. James was an intelligent young man. He had been given multiple scholarships when he graduated high school, and was even accepted into the Naval Academy. So it seems rather surprising that he would get this absorbed with a woman he had no relationship with other than as her employee. Some said he seemed in awe of Larissa, the brilliant scientist who took no crap from anyone. But still, going from admiring your boss to committing B&Es with her is a pretty big leap. And what James did with Larissa would turn out to be more than just breaking in. James was not a convincing liar. The police knew the story about him going there, not going inside, and then going home wasn't true. It didn't take much pressure to get James to tell more of the story or change his story, however you want to look at it. The new story was that when he and Larissa got to Tim's house and Larissa let herself in, he actually saw what he thought was Tim's dead body left of the front door. He said he freaked out and said he wanted to go home. But instead of taking him home, like he first said Larissa did, now he said that she actually got upset with him and demanded that he help move Tim's body into Tim's truck. When James helped her with that, he realized that Tim may have still been alive, but was just unconscious. At that point, Larissa bound Tim's hands and feet with zip ties. And then James sort of fell apart with the storytelling. He said he bought those zip ties for a bicycle a month before and gave them to Larissa and then said he actually bought them for her because she told him to. And then he mentioned how he also bought a stun gun. The investigator could tell that James was getting flustered. He was maybe spiraling. So 
They told James at this point that they didn't want to go back and forth on details like that. You know, why he bought the zip ties, why he gave them to Larissa, all of that. It was time to back up and start again from the beginning. And this time, James needed to tell them the whole truth. At this point, James changed the story again. He did keep going back and forth on the details, so let's just go over his final answer. This is already a two-parter. We don't need to make it a three-parter by covering all of James's hemming and hawing. I'll say that in every step from story number one of being there but not seeing anything to his final story, James was putting himself closer and closer to the crime each time. James told the investigators that leading up to the night of Tim's death, Larissa was pushing him to help her rob Tim again, except this time they were going to have to do it while Tim was home. Larissa said that Tim had a home security system installed, and she knew he would arm it every time he left. Because she would have to deal with Tim face-to-face during this robbery, She wanted the stun gun and the zip ties for the home invasion. James said he bought both of them for her. But James wouldn't help her actually commit this crime. So Larissa asked if he had any friends who could help, and he asked around, but no one wanted to get tied up in this mess. In the end, Larissa talked James into helping her on the night of July 9th. He said they arrived at Tim's house, and he stood to the side while Larissa said, I'm at your front door, and I need help, and said it had something to do with their son. It sounds to me like this was the 2 a.m. phone call that Larissa had initially denied. The call lasted around 22 seconds, so enough time to wake Tim up and convince him to come to the door. The police believe that Tim didn't trust Larissa 100% here and so he brought his gun to the door with him. But when he looked out and saw Larissa standing outside alone and in distress, he stuck the gun under the cushion and opened the door. But Larissa was not alone. When Tim opened the door, James rushed him from the shadows and hit him with the stun gun multiple times wherever he could make contact. Tim tried to fight back, and he certainly had a size advantage over James, but he was taken off guard, and of course, he's fighting off a stun gun. James eventually had Tim on the floor, where Tim kept fighting and left those scratch marks on Larissa's legs. James held him down as Larissa used the zip ties to bind him. Larissa then pulled out chloroform. Larissa told James to keep a lookout to make sure no one came up to the house. James told the investigators that he thought Larissa was going to knock Tim out and they would rob the place and then leave. He didn't see what she did next, but Tim was unconscious when Larissa called James over to help put Tim in the back of his truck. They drove to Larissa's house with Larissa pulling Tim's truck into her garage and James parking her car in the driveway. Larissa then asked James to get some things from upstairs, including a large blue barrel that he could barely lift with his back injury. 
Once downstairs, they put Tim's body in the barrel and then Larissa poured in the acid. James said that when they put Tim in the barrel, he did make some noises. However, Tim was completely limp at this point. So James wasn't sure if the noise was Tim actually breathing or groaning or if it was from the air being forced from his lungs as they were manipulating his body. Larissa and James then clamped a lid down on the barrel and moved it to a shed in the side yard. They then drove Tim's truck back to his house. At some point in this night, James went home riding Larissa's son's bike there. He said he then drank and passed out. A day or two after the murder, Larissa came to James and said that the police had talked to her about Tim's disappearance. Larissa said she couldn't keep the barrel at her house any longer, and James then helped her move the blue barrel from her shed to the lab where they put it in the back room. As James left the lab, Larissa told him to go home and keep his mouth shut. It wasn't long after this that Larissa then told James that they had to move the barrel again. She had hoped the acid would work quickly enough at dissolving the body that it wouldn't decompose to the point of smelling as badly as it did. But it smelled enough that the others at the lab would notice when they showed up to work on Monday. Larissa asked James to rent the truck for her, and he refused. Probably the only smart thing he did here. I mean, she was basically asking him to put his name on the paper trail to keep her out of it. He saw through that and refused to rent the truck in his name. So that's when Larissa got the U-Haul from Leslie, who had no way of knowing what Larissa was really up to. And that's when they moved the barrel from the lab to the storage unit. There were a few details James gave that helped verify his story. For instance, James said he threw the stun gun in a porta potty at a construction site. He drew a map of how to get there, and when the police followed those instructions, they found it. He also said he left Tim's truck keys at a friend's house where he had spent the weekend, and those were also recovered. James told the police he never wanted this to happen. He didn't even want to break in the first time, but he was able to talk himself into it. All they were really doing was taking back Larissa's stuff, things Tim shouldn't have had to begin with. Then he got pulled into the second break-in after trying to resist. And then, without his help or knowledge it was going to happen, Larissa killed Tim. And then James felt scared and like he had to help her cover it up. When this interrogation ended, James went with the police to his house where he signed a consent to search. In his room, they found a receipt for a stun gun on a bulletin board, along with a receipt for the zip ties. They were purchased on June 20th, about three weeks before Tim's murder. They also found a bottle that James said had had chloroform in it at one time, but he kept the bottle because he liked the way it looked. James seemed like he was cooperating pretty well, so they decided to ask another favor of James and have him make a call to Larissa to try to get her to implicate herself 
while they listened in and recorded it. But James wouldn't do it. He said he was not going to make that call, and then he was arrested for his role in the murder. The autopsy would go on to confirm other elements of James's story. Tissue samples were tested for chloroform, and they came back showing high levels. So the cause of death was ruled to be acute chloroform exposure and hydrochloric acid immersion. Though the acid immersion was listed as a cause of death, it was possible Tim was dead prior to going in the barrel. There's really no way to know. Even more of James's story would be verified through one of Larissa's friends, Tammy. The morning after Larissa was questioned by the police, Tammy went over to her house. Larissa said she was worried because the police caught her in a lie and she wondered if they put a tracker on her car while she was at the station. One thing Larissa said she was nervous about was that she went to the lab around 2 or 3 a.m., to do some work that needed to be done, and she went there after she talked to the police. It's quite possible that this was when she took the barrel with Tim's body in it to the lab, or perhaps she was checking on it, but Tammy didn't know that, obviously, and she wasn't quite sure why Larissa was so concerned that the police knew she went to the lab if she had gone there for benign reasons. Larissa then asked Tammy if she could wait at the house while Larissa went to James's house to pick up her son's bicycle. And this was another piece that lined up with James's story that he rode the bike back to his house. When Larissa got back home with the bicycle, Tammy told her that she needed to know the police could get search warrants while she was on vacation and that they could also take her computers. Larissa seemed very stressed at this point and asked Tammy to watch her son while she went to the lab to pay some bills ahead of leaving town. Sometime after Larissa left, between noon and two, James showed up. He walked right in, he went upstairs, he came down shortly after, and left without saying a word to Tammy. But Tammy thought to herself that he looked unwell, pale, and drawn. And Tammy, though at Larissa's house for a while that day, never saw any rototiller being moved. There was one part of James's story that just could not be verified because it was really something only he and presumably Larissa knew. James said he only knew they were breaking into the house. He said he did not know Larissa was going to kill Tim. So was that true? That would end up being for the courts to decide. With Tim's body being found at the storage unit Larissa used, Leslie's statements, James's statements, and all the other witness statements, an arrest warrant was issued for Larissa Schuster. And as far as I can tell, Larissa had no idea. She was on this multi-leg vacation with her son while all of this happened. And when they flew into Missouri to visit with family for the second leg of their trip, Larissa was arrested at the airport in St. Louis on July 16th. 
She was sent back to California to stand trial while her son stayed in Missouri with his grandparents and sister. At the time Larissa was arrested, she had receipts on her for air fresheners bought on the Saturday she moved the barrel and a card with the storage unit code written out on it and instructions on how to access the unit, which further links her to the place Tim's body was found. A cousin of Larissa's from Missouri spoke to the media saying that she knew the couple's custody battle had been bitter, but that Larissa was not a violent person and being involved in a murder was just not in her nature. And that seemed to be a sentiment expressed by those who knew Larissa from back home. They couldn't imagine the sweet, charming Larissa Schuster would ever be capable of murder. And that also tracks with some things Tim told his friends. Somewhere along the way, after their move to California, Larissa had changed. So now we have both James and Larissa under arrest, and that means we're going to have a number of pretrial motions. Oh, this case had so many pretrial motions, but let's just cover the big ones. In one of them, Larissa sought a court order to bar her 18-year-old daughter, Kristen, from talking to her little brother until after the trial. It was anticipated that this poor 12-year-old was going to be called as a witness, and his sister fully believed their mother was guilty. The defense didn't want her influencing his testimony or his perceptions. The court ended up denying this request because, one, there was no evidence Kristen had said anything to her brother. She had made a post online in response to another family member that was disparaging of Larissa, but that really wasn't proof of interfering with a witness. Plus, the two lived in Missouri, and it would be nearly impossible for a California court to enforce a no-contact order on two residents of another state. The practicality of the request definitely influenced the decision. Another motion is one we're very familiar with. James wanted his statements to the police to be thrown out, but that was denied. But maybe the most important pretrial motion here was the motion to sever the trials, which was granted. This came up in the Franklin Pullian case that the severing of the trials makes it a little easier for the obvious defense of pointing the finger at the other person, which is exactly what we're going to have happen here. James went to trial first in late 2006. He had been charged with murder, kidnapping, residential burglary, and torture, and they had a few special circumstances in there, including financial gain and lying in wait. Some of those special circumstances and the torture count were dismissed ahead of trial. James had given a full confession, so in a simpler world, the state would have just played that and rested their case. But of course, it is not that simple, and they called a number of witnesses and entered all of the evidence we've already gone over. And this evidence and these witnesses largely supported the confession. Now, if James was going to truly defend himself and have a chance at something less than life in prison, he was going to have to take the stand and explain things to the jury. And that's what he did. 
James explained how he met Larissa and was hired as a lab tech. He said that shortly after he started working there, he was dumping some waste into a barrel and mentioned how he had a teacher tell him a story about a man who disposed of his wife's body by putting her in a barrel of acid. He said he never imagined Larissa would take that offhanded comment and hold on to it. He said that it was several months later that Larissa told him she was getting a divorce, and months after that, Larissa said she was angry Tim had taken things out of the house while she was out of town. She knew he was going out of town for a week in August, and she wanted to go get her stuff. James testified how they got into the condo, which really shows how Larissa can plan things. Larissa had driven out to the airport where Tim had parked his truck. She found the truck, which she had a spare key to, and got his garage door opener out. They then drove to the condo, opened the garage with the opener, and then pried open the door from the garage into the home. James told the jury that at this point, he was really just along for the ride. Larissa was the driving force. It was about two months after the break-in that James left his job at the lab, testifying he was bored with it, but also that he wanted to get away from Larissa. He didn't really manage to go far from her since he kept babysitting her son. He said it was because he had become close to him and felt a big brother protectiveness. Larissa also paid him well for small tasks, and that, along with his regular job, meant the money was pretty good. As for the murder, James told a similar story as his confession, though with more details. But he was clear that Larissa had only ever talked to him about a break-in. She said that Tim had the alarm system, so they were going to have to do it while he was there. But chloroform would essentially erase his memory of who entered the house. By the time Tim woke up, they would be long gone. Tim would suspect that Larissa was behind this, but he wouldn't be able to prove it because he wouldn't remember anything. And that was the real motive behind this. Larissa wanted Tim to once again know that she entered his home and again be unable to do anything about it. James was the one who brought up the stun gun, telling Larissa that he saw one used in a movie once and that it knocked the person out right away. Larissa told him to go ahead and get the stun gun, but he didn't, not right away at least. Even though Larissa never mentioned to James that she was going to murder Tim, he knew that something like this could go sideways. He was afraid it would get out of hand and someone would get hurt, so he dragged his feet on the tasks Larissa gave him. He even tried to use his injuries from his motorcycle accident as a way to get out of the scheme. James said Larissa became more and more forceful, especially after she gave him money to buy supplies and potentially to pay friends to help. He kept putting it off until he began to worry about his personal safety if he didn't do what Larissa asked of him. So he made small moves towards it, like buying the stun gun. But soon enough, Larissa's deadline for the break-in came. She wanted it done before her vacation. 
On the night of the murder, Larissa called James around 1.30 in the morning. She told him, get his things and come out. And he knew that meant to get things for the robbery. He told the jury he was scared, but he thought if he was loyal to Larissa, he would be safe from her wrath. He also wasn't entirely sure that they were going to go through with the break-in that night because Larissa had mentioned just scoping out the place. So James got into her vehicle, not knowing if they were going to go break in or if they were just scoping out the place. James then testified that as he stood off to the side, he hoped Tim wouldn't come to the door. But when he did, James stepped out of the shadows and attacked him with the stun gun. James said that in the fight with Tim, he managed to get him in a headlock and that Tim passed out. And that's when Larissa used the chloroform. And that's one of those little details that changed a bit from his initial confession. James was clear at this point that Tim was still breathing. He was actually making snoring noises. James then testified that while he went to go keep lookout, Larissa went through the house looking for Tim's logbook. So Tim was alive, and James still thought this was just a robbery. That's when Larissa showed up with plastic from a dry-cleaning bag and wrapped it around Tim's head. James said he was too scared of what she would do to him if he stopped her. He believed, based on things Larissa had told him, that she knew people who could and would hurt him. Now, I'll interject here that if James truly believed this, he should have stopped and wondered why she needed him and or his random friends to commit a burglary if she knew people. But James insisted he was afraid of Larissa, he was afraid of retribution, and he was still afraid even as he was testifying. James said that when he saw Larissa and the plastic around Tim's head, he looked away, and the details after that moment got pretty fuzzy. He did help Larissa move the body, and James was 100% sure Tim was dead at this point because he didn't have a pulse and he wasn't breathing. And now this is pretty important to James's defense, that he didn't actually kill Tim. His wishy-washy story about maybe Tim was alive, maybe he wasn't when he went into the barrel. At this point, he has no question about it. Tim had no pulse and he was not breathing when he went into the barrel. The rest of the story with the barrel was largely the same. There were a few fuzzy details on who got the barrel out and things like that. James also testified he was the one who watched Larissa's son while she was at the police station after Tim was reported missing. And he said Larissa returned paranoid that she was under investigation. She told James that he had to help her get the barrel out of her shed, and he said he couldn't help her. She told him he didn't have a choice, which he took as a threat. So James helped her bring the barrel to the lab, and she added more acid to it before trying to get the lid back on but she couldn't get it on because of Tim's feet. As if this couldn't get any more gruesome, she went and got a saw. She used it to cut his ankles until they broke. When James left the lab that night, he hoped to never see Larissa again, but she kept calling him, asking him to meet her and to help her rent the truck. 
Instead, he offered to take her son for the day, which she agreed to. When he brought the boy back, Larissa said it was all taken care of. Larissa then left for her vacation, and he didn't see her again until they were arraigned in court on July 18, 2003. The defense did have some witness testimony to back up what James said. They called multiple witnesses to testify about how domineering Larissa was. They painted her as a manipulative bully, and James as the follower who didn't even know he was following Larissa into a premeditated murder plot. James didn't know about the acid. He didn't know about the barrel. The only preparations he knew about were related to the break-in. The defense also had some of James's friends back up his story that he believed this was a robbery. He had asked a few of them to be involved and gave some details. And those details were all about a robbery. And then they called a psychiatrist who had examined James for about 14 hours over five separate appointments. He also had access to documents pertaining to the case, including a video of James's interview with the police. The psychiatrist, Dr. Hosepian, testified about the relationship James had with Larissa and said it started off good, but soon became one in which James felt, quote, intimidated, threatened, and fearful. This change occurred around the time of the first burglary. Eventually, he feared a violent response to any signs of disloyalty. Due to this fear, James went along with Larissa, and then when he realized she killed Tim, he dissociated. The way he described how he felt was along the lines of this, and Dr. Housepian diagnosed James with PTSD. The defense knew the jury was going to wonder why this man, who didn't live with Larissa, no longer worked for her full-time, wasn't sleeping with her, had no financial dependence on her, why he didn't just walk away when she was pushing him into these break-ins. Just stop answering the phone and it would have been over. But he didn't do that, or he didn't feel like he could do that. And then why didn't he walk away when Larissa killed Tim? Instead, he helped her clean up, not just that night, but he helped her move the barrel to the lab. Dr. Housepian's testimony was an attempt to give a psychological explanation for what was going on in James's head. But I mean, it's hard to understand even with this testimony. And I'm sure the jury also heard another reason James agreed to help Larissa. She paid him. He got $2,000 for this second quote-unquote break-in. The jury took the case, and on December 12, 2006, they came back having found the defense explanations unpersuasive. James Fagoni was found guilty of first-degree murder and first-degree burglary, but they did acquit him of kidnapping. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and his appeals have been denied. Larissa went on trial in October 2007, 10 months after James's conviction. Due to all the pretrial publicity on the case, as well as the media coverage of James's trial, they had to move the trial to a different county to find an impartial jury. 
Now, the best witness against Larissa would have been James, except it couldn't be James. James had already filed his appeal, which, side note, was a huge source for this episode. But because James's appeal was pending, he couldn't be forced to testify because he had a Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate himself. And since James wasn't available for cross-examination, his confession that implicated Larissa also couldn't be played for the jury. So the state had to put this together without James. Fortunately for them, they had a lot of witnesses who had pieces that didn't require James to back it up, like Teresa, the manicurist, Leslie, the one who rented the storage unit and the U-Haul, and then there were others we haven't mentioned yet, like a neighbor named Judy, who said that at some point in June 2003, she saw Larissa move a large blue barrel into her garage. This was the month before Tim's death. The barrel had been ordered and shipped to the lab on April 30th, 2003, where it sat for several weeks. The lab Larissa owned did use large barrels like this, except the ones they used had small openings at the top. They were for the disposal of hazardous items. This barrel had a top that could be completely removed, and they never used those. A lab employee even asked Larissa about it. Larissa said she was using it for yard waste, but then asked if the employee thought a body could fit into it. Another witness was a man named Charles who delivered and installed a grill at Larissa's home in the summer of 2002, about a month before the first break-in. Larissa asked him if he did odd jobs, and he said he did. That was perfect because Larissa, with Tim having moved out, needed more help around the house to do the things she didn't have time for. But then Larissa asked Charles if he would help her get her stuff back from her ex while he was out of town. She told him he could take anything he wanted from the house. This wasn't the type of odd job Charles was looking for, so he wouldn't help her, but Later on, she did make a comment to him indicating that she had taken care of it. Several months later, Larissa asked Charles again about going to her ex's house to get some stuff. This time, she specifically said she wanted him to use a stun gun on Tim, and then she would go take back more of her property. She did offer to pay him for this, and he said she didn't mention anything about murder. But again, not the type of odd job Charles did, so he declined to help her. The state said the motive here was financial gain in the sense that Larissa wanted to prevent a financial loss. Tim owned 49% of her business. She was living in the family home, which was worth over $600,000, and Tim would be entitled to 50% of the equity. There was a lot of money at stake. To bring the case together, the state played the threatening voicemails that Tim had saved. This would be a juxtaposition to when Larissa took the stand and turned on the charm. Larissa's defense attorney had waited to give his opening statement until after the state rested their case, and he let the jury know that their defense was simple. Larissa didn't do it. James did it, and she helped cover it up. 
Her attorney told the jury that Tim was the angry spouse and the one who belittled his wife. After she filed for divorce, Tim began stalking her. The voicemails Larissa left weren't proof of homicidal rage. They were stemming from Tim's behavior towards her after she filed for divorce. But they had stopped a full seven months prior to the murder. He told the jury that Larissa didn't know Tim was dead when the police first interviewed her. When she went home after, she told James that she thought Tim had purposely disappeared to ruin her vacation with her son. James told her that there was actually nothing to worry about because he had killed Tim and hid his body in the shed. Larissa was shocked and scared, but she didn't call the police. She chose to keep James's secret, not for James's sake, but for her son's. She knew that learning his father was dead would obviously ruin his dream vacation, and she wanted him to have that before the reality set in for him. The attorney said, of course, she shouldn't have done that, and she shouldn't have been thinking that way, but that was the truth. Larissa, though she helped cover up the murder, did not participate in any way. He also said that the idea that Larissa had more to gain with Tim dead just didn't track. The business wasn't worth nearly as much as the state said, and if Tim died, his half wouldn't go to her anyway. It would go into trust for the children. So either way you looked at it, divorce or death, Larissa was going to have the same financial outcome. Like James, Larissa opted to testify in her own defense. She testified about how the marriage fell apart and how stressed she was when Tim moved out, taking things with him that hadn't been agreed to. And then she admitted that she did break in and take her things back in August of 2002. To explain her voice messages to Tim, Larissa said they were wrong, but there was a lot going on like how Tim would use their custody order against her. And that's also the source of her venting about Tim, saying things like she wished he was dead. She wasn't serious about it. She was letting off steam. Larissa admitted James was one of the people she vented to. James listened, but he didn't seem to hold any personal animosity towards Tim himself. But leading up to her vacation, she did tell James that she was worried Tim would interfere with the trip, even though it was allowed in the custody agreement. But she thought things might be okay because her attorney had called and told her about a stipulation Tim's attorney had sent over. In exchange for not objecting to Larissa taking their son out of state for two weeks, Tim would get two weeks straight in August. So while she was still worried Tim wouldn't bring their son back in time for the early morning flight, she was feeling like things would overall work out. They were finally compromising on something. So Larissa was telling the jury that things had been bad, but they looked like they were getting better, which was an attempt at dismantling the motive for her to kill Tim. Larissa then had to explain why she lied to the police about the phone call. Larissa said she had actually forgotten about it initially. 
She had called to make sure Tim was going to drop their son off in time for the flight and that things would go smoothly if she signed that stipulation. She said their conversation was short, which is backed up by the phone records. After Larissa remembered the call in the police interrogation room, she kept lying about it because at that point, she thought it would look suspicious if she admitted that, oh yeah, suddenly she remembered. And then if they suspected her of doing something to Tim, they might detain her. And if they detained her, that vacation would have been impacted. She didn't want her son to lose this trip. When Larissa left the police station, it was between 1 and 2 a.m., and she testified that she was exhausted and she was upset. She was half convinced that Tim disappearing was an attempt to interfere with that vacation. When she got home, her son was sleeping, but James, who was babysitting, was still awake. Larissa started ranting at him about Tim, and James said something about how there had been an accident and that Tim had been killed. It took Larissa a second to recover from the surprise, and she thought James wasn't being serious. She thought it was a joke. But then James said Tim's body was actually in her shed at that moment. Larissa freaked out. She didn't know what to do. And though she considered calling the authorities, she just told James to move the body. She didn't want details. She just wanted it done. Later, James told her that he put Tim's body in a barrel and put the barrel in the back of her lab. Larissa told James that he couldn't just leave a body in the lab and he had to move it. He said he would if she got him a truck, which she did with the help of Leslie. James didn't know where to take the barrel, and Larissa suggested her storage unit if he promised he would move it again as soon as he could. Again, Larissa said she considered calling the police at this point, but she knew that it would be the end of those vacation plans. She said she was overwhelmed at the time, and she realized now that these were bad decisions. A little harder to explain were her decisions from before Tim's death. She just so happened to buy the acid that was used to dispose of Tim's body a couple of months before. Larissa said it was for a cleaning project in the lab that was periodically done. And then there was the barrel, the type the lab didn't use, that she ordered again ahead of time. She said she didn't even remember ordering the barrel specifically, but she did remember when it was delivered. And she said she remembers making a comment about how big the barrel was, and it was the employee who mentioned fitting a body in it, not her. She also denied it was ever at her house, even though the neighbor testified she saw it there. As for the $2,000 payment that Larissa made to James, she said it was just a bulk payment for babysitting and household tasks, and she gave James that much at once because he was moving into his own apartment. It wasn't for zip ties and a stun gun or payment for illegal services. It was payment for the sorts of things he had been doing for her all along. In a way, Larissa's defense was pretty simple. She was innocent. James did it by himself, perhaps in a misguided attempt to protect her and her son. But she sure had a lot of little parts to try to explain away to the jury 
that really added up. She spent five days on the stand. But by all reports, she came across as credible. She looked at the jury when she spoke to them. She was clear in how she expressed herself, and she just came across as believable. And when she stepped off the stand, people were shocked when they saw a juror flash a thumbs up at Larissa. The judge, of course, pulled that juror into chambers, and she said she hadn't made up her mind about guilt or innocence, and she hadn't communicated with Larissa other than that one thumbs up, but she just wanted Larissa to know that she did a good job on the stand, given all the pressure she was under. Now, I don't know how you construe a thumbs up as anything except support, but the juror said she could continue to remain unbiased until she has heard all of the evidence. And if the juror was biased, it was in Larissa's favor. Larissa wasn't being prejudiced against. So the judge did allow the juror to remain. Larissa's defense team had a few witnesses to try to back up her version of the story. They called a manager from the storage place who said that the U-Haul arrived with two men in it, not a woman. She also testified that there was a foul-smelling odor coming from a dumpster on the property after the U-Haul left. And that little piece led into the next witness, who was a forensic pathologist who testified that the acid could not have dissolved only Tim's upper half in that time and not also his lower half. This pathologist believed that Tim had been dismembered and the upper portion of his body disposed of elsewhere, possibly in that dumpster. This testimony was brought in to question the police investigation a bit. They didn't find evidence of a dismemberment happening at Tim's house, Larissa's house, the lab, the storage unit, or James's house. So if it happened, where did it happen? If this pathologist was correct, this is a huge gap in information. The defense also called an expert on battered women's syndrome, which is sometimes called battered person syndrome now. I was on the mock trial team in high school, and I played the role of an expert on what we called battered woman syndrome back in those days, so I did have to read up a lot about it, so I was kind of surprised it came up here. Battered person syndrome, particularly back in the early 2000s, only applied to physical abuse, though there has been conversation about how the same behaviors and issues could apply when there is verbal or emotional abuse. So first I thought, what emotional abuse? Every person who knew the couple said Larissa was the forceful personality, the person who would put down her spouse in public, the one who left threatening and degrading voicemails. And then I wondered, even if it was true, how did it apply here when Larissa was saying she didn't do it? As for the abuse part, the expert said that Larissa had dealt with years of a non-violent, passive-aggressive behavior from Tim. He would avoid confrontation and withhold affection. Larissa felt trapped in the marriage, and when she finally filed for divorce, she was still trapped as they couldn't settle the divorce. Because Larissa had been in a violent relationship while in college, someone who did physically abuse her and stalk her, this compounded the issue she had with Tim, 
even though it had been 10 years of a relatively healthy relationship in between. When Larissa would get angry and Tim would back down, she didn't have an outlet for her anger, and that actually made her more angry. And the defense was not presenting this as an explanation for murder, but rather as an explanation for why Larissa kept telling people she wanted Tim dead and why she left him all those horrible voicemails. She was lashing out due to the years of passive-aggressive behavior from Tim. The expert testified that Larissa showed signs while Tim was alive, such as depression and hair loss, and she showed it after he died, when the expert examined her. She was still obsessed with her relationship with Tim. She would bring up mild complaints about him and was clearly still distressed over it, more so than was reasonable considering he was dead. In closing, the state actually attempted to use this against Larissa. They told the jury they had some confusion over the battered person syndrome experts since Larissa wasn't offering an insanity defense or a provocation defense. But if the point of the testimony was to explain why Larissa was so angry, they believed it supported their case. Larissa was angry, and it led to murder. They walked the jury through all the evidence of premeditation, like the stun gun, the barrel, and the acid. They said it was clear Larissa Schuster was guilty. The defense ended up not bringing the expert up during their closing remarks and actually specifically told the jury that Larissa wasn't guilty of homicide of any degree, whether it's manslaughter or murder. But then the defense did ask the court that during jury instructions, the jury be given a specific instruction on voluntary manslaughter based on heat of passion. They weren't saying that's what happened, but wanted the jury to understand what that was should it be their conclusion as to what really happened. And the state did not object to this. The jury took the case and deliberated for five days. In the end, they found Larissa Schuster guilty of first-degree murder with the special circumstance of financial gain. At Larissa's sentencing hearing in May 2008, Larissa did not speak on the advice of her attorney. They intended to appeal the conviction, and her appeal was also a major source for these two episodes. Most people who were there to speak were speaking against Larissa. Only her father and a friend supported her. James Fagoni's parents attended, and his mother spoke saying that she had a hard time forgiving Larissa for involving James in her schemes. But as a very religious person, she was going to do as Jesus told her and extend that grace to Larissa. Larissa and Tim's daughter, Kristen, did not share that sentiment. She was a mother herself at this point with a child who would never meet his grandfather. She was getting married soon, and her father wasn't there to walk her down the aisle. It wasn't just that she lost him right as they were rebuilding their relationship, but she lost him in such a gruesome and horrific way. Kristen said she hoped Larissa would be haunted by Tim's last moments as he struggled for his life. She said she missed the mother Larissa used to be before she became angry and greedy.
Kristen addressed Larissa directly when she told her it wasn't just goodbye for now, it was goodbye forever. She was leaving her mother in the past. She was letting go. They always say not to wait for an apology before you forgive someone, and I think that's a good thing, since based on everything I've read and watched about this case, I don't think Larissa is sorry for anyone except herself. After the victim impact statements, Larissa was sentenced to life without parole. She was led out of the courtroom without looking back. She is currently housed at the California Institution for Women, and all of her appeals have been denied. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. <laughs>